Well, Psalm 19, as uh, Luke read, was written by King David. And it describes, in one of the most beautiful examples of Hebrew poetry, how God communicates to people. My friend C.S. Lewis said that it is the greatest poem in the Bible. The first part teaches how God speaks through nature, what we call general revelation. The second part teaches how God speaks through his word called special revelation. In other words, the knowledge of God comes to us in two volumes, nature and the Bible. Psalm 19 teaches that in order to know God personally, we need both. Now the psalm breaks nicely into, into three sections. The first, God's revelation in his world. The second, God's revelation in his word. And the third, or finally, how we are to pray in response to these magnificent revelations of God. See, David is clearly moved by the greatness of God as he uses beautiful poetry and profound theology to communicate important truths. And, and in order for us today to absorb the majesty and magnificence of a God who reveals himself to people, we're going to go verse by verse looking at this psalm and we're going to concentrate, surprisingly enough, on uh, some of the important Hebrew words. So, Verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Uh, that word declares means unveiling. It is to disclose something that was previously hidden. God chose to reveal his glory and splendor to us. And the word implies a conscious decision. God's world is not a veil hiding his glory from us, but rather he has chosen to reveal that glory to us in his creation. Now, that word glory there in verse one literally means weighty or important. So one of the ways that God reveals his importance to us is through his creation. So, verse 2 says that there's no pause in the evidence of God's glory. He says, day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Day after day, night after night, the heavens pour out speech. Now, the Hebrew word pours out literally means bubbling up. It's like a natural spring that continually provides a supply of, of fresh water. And, and it doesn't stop when the sun goes down. When night falls, the stars continue the chorus. There's never a break in this great symphony of praise. Well, well not only is God's glory gushing forth from the heavens like an open fire hydrant. But verses three and four say that it, it's comprehensive. 
It's a universal language reaching every corner of the globe. Verse 3 says, There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. God's creation speaks in visual, unwritten words, so you don't even have to know how to read in order to grasp God's glory. In this highly visual age of Netflix and YouTube and and every other form of, of social media, we've become incredibly visually dependent for our information. Yet if we're honest with ourselves, pretty much every day, every one of us who are Christians, we miss this amazing worship service. We just don't see it as we should. How is that even possible? Well, I think it's the old saying that familiarity breeds contempt. We get so used to it. When I first moved to Gilbert, we uh, had a, a nice house at, at um, McQueen and between Baseline and Guadalupe. The realtor failed to, to uh, tell us that there was a train that ran by very, very close at about 2 o'clock and 4 o'clock every single morning. Well, for about the first week, uh, I couldn't sleep. Uh, but then after a while, I, I, I didn't notice it anymore. And, and I'm afraid that's how we get um, when we miss the incredible glory that God provides for us every day. We are surrounded day and night by a magnificent worship team led by the heavens and sky above, constantly declaring God's glory. So we as Christians need to slow down so that we can join in this praise chorus. And one of the ways that we can do it is when we pray. Because he is so worthy of our praise, because he is so magnificent, when we pray, before we rush in with those heartfelt needs and concerns, we need to stop and recognize just who it is we're praying to. We need to to take a look outside and see the glorious, beautiful sky and all that is around us and remember just who it is that we pray to. That's the way we start our prayers. And when we do, when we start our prayer with him and his glory, then it gives us the opportunity to not just brush by what God is and who he's showing us to be. We need to acknowledge just how glorious he is when we pray. Now, if you're here today and and you're not a Christian, in fact, if you're not even sure that there is a God, you need to know that because God has revealed himself so clearly in nature that everyone is responsible for responding to this revelation. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. General revelation, nature, reveals to all people that there is a glorious and powerful creator. 
whether it's in the, the splendor of a sunset or, or the grandeur of a mountain range or just the simple beauty of a flower. All of creation is shouting that there's something more. General revelation is so clear and so obvious, no one has the right to deny God's existence. So as David is describing this incredible revelation, he thinks, well, maybe somebody might be a little bit fuzzy about it. Maybe they, they don't recognize it. Maybe they are someone who, who doesn't believe in God. So what he does is he gives us an example. David gives us an example of creation's manifestation of God's glory, and it's the sun. Look at verse 5. The end of, starting at the end of verse 4. In them... He has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. See, David, rather than seeing the sun as a deity, like most ancient poets, he, he sees the sun as a display of, of God's power. The sun, as it rises every day, as it travels across the sky, bringing light and heat to the planet, it is just one example of nature's testimony that behind the universe is a planner and a designer with infinite power, infinite majesty. So in these first six verses, in this first section, David makes it abundantly clear that all creation declares that there is a God. In the next section, he says that we can't truly know this God without his word. We can see the power and majesty of God by simply looking at the universe he's created, but we can't personally know him without his word, the Bible. And, and in order to highlight the difference between those first six verses and the next three verses, David mentions God's name only once in those first six verses. It's in verse one, and when he does, he uses the Hebrew word El, which is the general word for God. But now, when he switches gears to talk about God's word, six times in those next three verses, he uses God's name Yahweh. Yahweh is the Hebrew personal name for God. It is the name that God used when he first introduced himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 3. It, it is the name that God used when he redeemed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai and said, I am your God and you are my people. By changing in these verses from the name El to the name Yahweh, David is teaching that while the heavens reveal that there is a glorious creator, it's the scriptures that reveal God as redeemer. So in this next section, in these next three verses, David uses five synonyms for the word of God, followed by five adjectives and, and five verbs. And, and all of them are combined together to describe 
how the word of God affects us as his people and, and the wonderful qualities and attributes of the word of God. This glorious God who spoke all things into existence also has spoken to his people in law, testimonies, precepts, commandments, and rules. And because they are God's words, they are more beneficial to us than anything else that we could read, anything else that we could watch, and anything else that we could listen to. As I came in, I noticed that, that you have a, a nice book cart out there. Um, and on the top, there are some books that are really good, and on the bottom are the Bibles. The only book that we can fully recommend 100% are those Bibles because those are the ones that are the very words of God. Now, each one of the words, law, testimonies, precepts, commandments, and rules, each one of those imply authority. Okay? When God speaks to us in this book, those are not hints. These are not suggestions. These are commands that we must listen to and obey. That's why James, the brother of Jesus, said we're not to be just hearers of the word, we're to be doers. So what I want to do is, is look at each one of those five words, um, beginning in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Now that word law is the Hebrew word Torah. And most of the time, when that word is used in the Old Testament, it's referring to the first five books of the Bible. But there are times, as in, in this case, where it is referring to the entire Old Testament scripture. So he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, meaning that it is complete. It is without error. There are no omissions. There's nothing left out. No mistakes. It is totally true. Here, here's what the Apostle Paul said about the word in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's all here. It's perfect. Now he says that it revives the soul. And what that means is it brings life. The word of God brings dead hearts to life. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, Paul says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. The word of God gives life. But interestingly, that word reviving uh, can also be translated uh, for food that, that restores strength. So in other words, God's word is our spiritual food. It nourishes our souls. When Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, he said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The word of God gives us life and it gives us strength. 
The next, at the bottom of uh, verse 7, he says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Basically, the word testimony means instruction manual. Now that God has given us life, he's going to teach us how to live that life. It's our playbook. It's how we go about living a life that honors God. It's here in this book. Now that word simple doesn't mean foolish, but it, it means one who needs to learn, one who needs to be instructed. And that's every single one of us. We need God's word in order to learn. And then the word sure means that God's word isn't variable. It, it doesn't change when culture changes its mind. It's reliable and dependable in all situations. So the word of God gives life, it gives strength, and it gives wisdom. And then in verse 8, he says, The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Now that word for precept means a road map. It keeps us going in the right direction. And there's great joy in knowing we're going the right way. I don't have a great sense of direction. I'm very thankful for cell phones now. Uh, but boy, I have been lost a lot. And that moment when you see that, that street sign that you're looking for, and you know you're now going the right way, there's that, that sense of joy that you feel that you're going in the right direction. There, there's a, a great Geico commercial um, with Tarzan and Jane. And um, of course, they're, they're fighting. And what does he say? Well, this is what married couples do. They fight about directions, right? When we don't know where we're going, when we're lost, it's tremendously stressful. But when we know we're going in the right direction, when we're following what God's word has to say to us, there's great joy. And there's even joy in those times when the circumstances are very challenging. You see, we can have joy even in those challenging circumstances when we stay on the right path. Uh, next week, Tom Schrader is going to be coming to preach. He's the founding pastor of East Valley Bible Church and one of the leadership team of, of redemption overall, and he's got some great sayings. Uh, hopefully, he'll give you a few next week, but I'm going to give you one right now. Um, he says, let what you know trump what you feel. And see, when you know God's faithfulness and who he is in the midst of those challenging circumstances, then you can truly have joy even when things are so tough. Then he says, the commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. It means that in, in addition to, to life and strength and joy and wisdom, God's word gives us light to see things as they really are. When we filter our life through this book, we get to see ourselves as we really are and we get to see the world around us as it really is. In Psalm 119, 105, it says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
because God's word gives light and because it's pure, it will never call evil good. It will never say what is wrong is right. Now, the word of God doesn't deny the fact of evil. In fact, this book is filled with stories of deeply flawed people, including David himself. But it will never make sin look good. It will never call sin right. Then in verse 9, David kind of switches for a moment here. I think he's probably got a little ADD. And he, he, I'm not sure why he went over here, but the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Now that fear that he's referring to is a, is a healthy fear. It, it's an awe. It's a, it's a reverence for God. It's a respect that one who has received life and strength and joy and wisdom and light has for this incredible creator who has revealed himself and given us this roadmap. When we follow what God has for us in this book, when we understand who he is, we can't help but have that fear and that awe and that reverence. And you know what that leads to? When you recognize who it is that loves us and who it is that has given us this, you can't help but love him. And you know, when, when we love him, that leads to obedience. In, in John chapter 14, Jesus is, has gathered his disciples together. This is his last words. This is the upper room discourse. This is stuff that you, you better remember. Three times in chapter 14 of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. You want to be able to do what this book says? You want to follow this roadmap? You have a healthy awe and reverence and love for the God who spoke in creation and in his word. And then he, he says it, it's clean. That, that word clean refers to the ritual purity of the priest's that were necessary for them to enter into the service of God in either the tabernacle or the temple. And when they were, they were allowed to enter into God's service. And I think what that says to us is our ability to serve God and to honor him in whatever we do has to start with that healthy fear and reverence and awe and love for God. And then when we do and we step out, and serve him, it's clean, it's beautiful in, in God's eyes. And then he says that the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And that simply means that God's word is the standard for righteousness. To be righteous simply means to be right with God. God's people, we don't have to wonder how to be right with our king. It's all here. It's all together here for us. So then in, in verse 10, David talks about the value of the word of God. 
He says, it's more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. See, these words are absolutely invaluable. Uh, there are a few of us here today who uh, was with me in Greece just a couple of weeks ago. We had an incredible trip, uh, saw some amazing things. But one of the most remarkable things that we saw was the tomb of Philip of Macedon, who is the, was the father of, of uh, Alexander the Great. And inside that tomb, they found a crown of pure gold. I, I can't even begin to imagine how valuable that, it, it was invaluable, that gold. 2,300 years old, in perfect condition. But David says, God's word is even more valuable than that. He says there's great reward in, in following God's word. So what he says is when we have a choice between trusting and obeying the word of God and getting gold, even much fine gold, we must choose the words of God. When we have an opportunity in, in, a, in a business setting to maybe be less than honest in a deal in order to make that deal and close it and get paid, David's saying, don't do it. Being honest is way more valuable than whatever reward you can receive from that deal closing. David's point here is incredibly important. The reward of knowing and obeying God's word far outweighs any financial reward, no matter how great it can be. What that means is, is when we get up first thing in the morning, rather than checking the stock market or our portfolio or our bank account, we need to go here. And if we don't, we're like a kid who'd prefer a penny over a dime because the penny's bigger. See, we need to teach our children what's more valuable. And that's what David is doing for us here. His words are far more valuable than any gold, even much fine gold. Now, here's the, the wonderful thing is, he says it's sweeter than honey. Usually, what's good for you doesn't taste very good. Right? When did kale become a food? <laughs> oh, it's awful. But it's really good for you. No, he says it's sweeter even than the honeycomb. Uh, when I was a kid growing up in Boston, there was this uh, ice cream store called Putnam Pantry. And it was a place where you could get those good old-fashioned cups, glass cups, and you could make your own sundaes. Okay, this was not the Froyo stuff with non-fat, non-sugar yogurt and fruit. Okay, this was rich, creamy ice cream with chocolate fudge and caramel and marshmallow and whipped cream and every form of candy on top of it. That's what he says the Word of God is. It is so valuable and so sweet and so important. It needs to be our greatest treasure and our greatest pleasure. And because this law, this word, is so important to us, David prays at the end of this psalm that he won't disobey. Look at verse 12. Who can discern his errors? 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them have no dominion over me. See, what David is doing is praying for protection. He's recognizing that he has so easy for him to stumble. It's just like what Jesus taught the disciples when he taught them to pray. He said, lead me not into temptation. He didn't say, forgive me for my sins. Now, of course, we're forgiven when we sin. 1 John 1, 9 says that he, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But, but as Chuck Swindoll says in his book, The Grace Awakening, that's the hospital verse. That's the verse that we use when we fall off the cliff. But the word of God is the road sign that says stop, danger. And when David prays, he doesn't just generalize and say, oh Lord, protect me from sins. He speaks of four areas that he needs protection and that he prays that God would provide that protection for him. First thing is in, in those sins that, that he can't see clearly. You go, oh, wait a minute. If they're hidden, how do we know what they are? Well, that's why God gives us a spouse. <laughs> Look, I've, I've been married 39 years, and there's nobody who knows my hidden faults or is more ready to tell me about them <laughs> than my wife. For those of us who are not married, you need to be in community. You need to be willing to pray that God would provide you with someone in your life who loves you enough to be honest about those hidden faults. And then, when they've shared that with you, together, go to the Word of God to learn how to deal with those. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 16, Paul says, holding fast to the Word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, we also need to pray that God would keep us from presumptuous sins. So what he's referring to there are those times in our lives when we're confident that we can do what we want to do on our own. We don't, we don't say this, we don't particularly verbalize it, but we run off and, and, and go and, and follow our own plans and we get kind of down the road on, on decisions that we've made or, or plans that we made and then we get a little bit nervous and we think, oh, God, maybe you should sprinkle some of that special Holy Spirit dust on my plans so things work out the way I want them to. And David says, Lord, keep me from that. Keep me from self-confidence. Keep me from being presumptuous to think that I can do anything on my own, anything without you. When, when the Israelites were commissioned to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem in 520 BC, the prophet Zechariah reminded them that it was not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And, and we have such a tendency to go off on our own. David knows that if we pray beforehand, then we have a, a, a much better opportunity to be in the place that God wants us. Uh, a gentleman by the name of John Owen said it this way. He said, a religious, decent, moral life derived from self and not born of God is as sinful as the worst of sinful lives. In Romans 14, 23, Paul says that whatever is not of faith is sin. 
Now David recognizes he's, he's just not going to get all the way there. But he says, let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. See, David knows it's direction, not perfection. He, he knows I'm not going to get to be completely innocent, but Lord, I want to get there. And he knows that the way to get there is through prayer, asking God to protect him from those things that are even hidden from himself in those times where he believes he's self-confident. But he also recognizes that there's more, that it's not just what you do. It's what you say and what you think. And he needs God's help to keep those under control. So he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, those are the deep areas. Uh, James says that the, the tongue um, is a fire. It's a world of unrighteousness. We need help in controlling our tongue. We need help to keep us from saying those things that will be hurtful and unkind. We need to pray that God would give us that help. And then we need to pray even deeper. The thoughts of our heart. Lord, we want those to be pure. Because I know and you know that whatever goes on in here is eventually going to show itself out here. So David prays for God's protection from his mouth and his thoughts. What a beautiful picture of prayer. A prayer that starts with the gloriousness of God, recognizes and acknowledging that it is he who created all things and who loves us and has a relationship with us. And then to ask God, first and foremost, for protection, to keep us from sinning. And then go and pour out your heart for whatever you need. And, and David ends this prayer by acknowledging who it is that he prays to. He's praying to his rock and his redeemer. Uh, rock in the Old Testament usually refers to a place of protection. But it can also mean creator. David is recognizing that God is the creator who has the power to answer whatever prayers he brings. This creator of the universe has the power to do whatever we ask. So by recognizing God as our rock, we are acknowledging and recognizing the confidence that we can have in coming to God in prayer. And then finally, Redeemer, which refers to one who saves or redeems another by paying the necessary price. God can be known as rock through general revelation, but only as Redeemer through special revelation, through his word. So back to you who may be here today because it's Father's Day or whatever and, and, and you don't know for sure if there is a God. I want you to know there's only one prayer for you. How to know this glorious creator as my redeemer. And, and so you could know that God gave us the ultimate revelation. He became a man in the person of Jesus Christ.
The Gospel of John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a man so that he could live that perfect life and take upon himself our sin and pay the price at the cross of Calvary so that we could know God as Redeemer. And if you believe that, if you recognize that there is a creator and he's revealed himself through his word and then through Jesus Christ and you trust him and him alone for your salvation, then you can begin that process of understanding his laws, his precepts, his testimonies, his commandments, and his rules. And for the rest of us, let's remember just what a God that we pray to. Let's pray together.